0: The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a critic of all thoughts and intents from the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Once again, open the word of truth to 1 Timothy chapter 1, now in verse 17. Verse 17. Verse 17 says the following. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, invisible, The only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, previously I referred to this as a doxology. Uh, I think that is right to a degree. However, the more I looked at the word doxology, the more I realized that it has a liturgical connotation. So in the context of sort of the liturgy of a very kind of high church church service, of course, our church has a form of liturgy. You know, we do the same things in the similar order every week. We follow a similar pattern. We always use First John one nine. There's there's a pattern to our worship services, and the liturgy is essentially a pattern. But I didn't want you to think that by doxology I was referring exclusively to the liturgy or to liturgical tradition. So instead, I think I'll, I'll term this verse an exaltation. An exaltation of who and what God is. Which we find quite often in Paul. And not only, as you can see here, at the closing of one of Paul's epistles, but also kind of interspersed in the middle. I mean, there's several in the book of Ephesians. There's several in the pastoral epistles. There's several in Romans. You have sort of this now to God certain things, certain things that he possesses, amen, being kind of the closing of that exaltation or the exaltation prayer. So, in order to introduce and really exposit this verse, we will do so in in a series of points so that you can get it down on paper. So, verse uh, excuse me point one. In verse seventeen, Paul solidifies his exaltation of God. book begins you know grace mercy and peace from god the father and christ jesus our lord we have paul exalting god and more specifically exalting christ in the first several verses extensively but here we have paul solidifying his exaltation of god secondly paul begins by referring to god as king Point three this firmly establishes the supreme authority of God over all. God has authority. God utilizes authority. God is authority. he is all-powerful but he is also all authoritative. He he rules over this world, the very creation itself. And he is in the midst of waging war that's much more important and much more difficult than any situation going on in Eastern Europe right now. This war is an unseen war. It's known as the angelic conflict. God is the protagonist in this. He is the authority structure over all the angels. He is the authority over all of us, over all things. And this is proof to us in the fact that in the sense that he created everything. He created the world. This is his world. As the popular hymn goes, this is my father's world. Oh let me never forget. The fact that God rules over this world is goes hand in hand with the fact that he created the world. It's his world. It belongs to him. And he is the authority structure over everything. Now, does he delegate authority to certain entities, to certain people in certain fashions, for certain periods of time throughout the dispensations of human history? Yes, firmly, absolutely. He delegates authority. The most obvious example of that delegated authority to us in our modern lens is government governmental authority. Romans chapter 13 is where one would go to get a clear view of God's delegated authority towards government in, in, in power structures. He, he gives governmental authority. He gives that true authority. It's sanctioned from God. Meaning that nations, as you know, are one of the Divine institutions. But over and above all measures of human authority, you know, spiritual authority of pastor over a church, spiritual spiritual authority of a husband over the married unit and the family, authority of bosses over employees, authority of in, in the in the context of the military rank structure that's a good illustration of authority structure is the way in which military authority is organized um, a teacher over classmates you know there are several examples of where God delegates authority for various things to specific people or groups you know in the Old Testament God delegated authority to the prophets to the judges at a previous time in the history of Israel to the kings once Israel said they wanted to be like the rest of the nations and they demanded that God send them a king God gave them a king it didn't work out very well if you want to read about Saul in First uh, Samuel Second Samuel also in the, in the Psalms as David is sort of processing through all of this but God did all the, all the same delegate that authority to the kings of Israel so there's delegated authority to certain people in certain places at certain times for certain reasons. But God, notice in the point, is he has the supreme authority. God is authoritative. God has supreme authority over all. And just in these few words, now to the king, Paul firmly establishes that. He exalts his worship, and he exalts his worship of the king the authority the one God point four Paul emphasizes two of the main attributes of God his eternality and his spiritual presence I'll repeat that Paul emphasizes two of the main attributes of God, his eternality and his spiritual presence. God has no beginning, and he has no end. He is eternal. This is one of the main facets of who God is as he reveals himself to us. And you know, it's interesting, there are sects of so-called Christianity. In this particular case, this is a cult that uh, disguises themselves as Christians. But I was watching a lengthy debate between two Christian men and a Mormon, or as they would refer to themselves, a Latter-day Saint, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, although the Jesus Christ portion should probably be put in air quotes because of the sorts of things that they teach. They would deny the eternal nature of God. They believe that God, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, was a man just like me. And because he obeyed correctly, he was raised to some higher form of divinity, he was made a God, and he was given a planet called Earth. That's God the Father. He's just a dude, who lived a really good life and had a bunch of kids, and as a reward was given a planet, and that's the planet that you and I are standing on today. It's absolutely ludicrous. It has absolutely no spiritual legitimacy, apart from the 19th century ravings of a silly person known as Joseph Smith. But we, we can, again, as I've sort of brought you in previous weeks, we can glance through these things. Yes, he's eternal. But you have to understand that there's real stakes in this. God's eternality is actually denied by people professing themselves to be Christians. God has no beginning and God has no end. That means billions and billions and billions of years ago, God already was. He was in eternity past prior to the creation of human history. He was in eternity past prior to the fall of Lucifer and the fallen angels. He is eternal. It's a concept we are not able to wrap our heads fully around because we are finite. But we need to intellectually assent to it, really spiritually assent to it, all the same. God is eternal. This same eternality of God is denigrated and mocked not only by the Mormon the Mormon so-called church, uh, but also by people who are addicted to science and scientism. They would say that there's no need for a god because matter just spontaneously existed billions of years ago. There was some Big Bang, which the jury's still out on. And through a series of random decisions, really not decisions, through a series of just random incidences, From billions of years ago to now, we are alive here. There's no need for God in this science-religion worldview, where science becomes the religion. Mind you, I'm not denigrating science, but people can be addicted and really worshipful of science instead of God. They would mock and deny what we call God's eternality, his eternal nature, because they don't accept there being a such thing as eternity. Because in order for the universe to be created, it had to have a starting point. And before that starting point, there was nothing. Of course, they conveniently forget to answer the question about how all the stuff, all, how all the primordial soup was floating around there in the ether for you know however many billions of years. How did that stuff get there? And then what caused it to bang? I never understood the term Big Bang, but that's a story for a different day. So, God's eternality and God's spiritual presence. So, I've covered God's eternality there, right? He is eternal. He is eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. He is also spiritual presence. God the Father does not have a physical body. God is spirit. He is not physical. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, did have a body. And when he returns at the second advent, he will have a body. It has a very descriptive language in the Book of Revelation about what that body will look like, and we have to sort through what of that is illustrative, and what is descriptive, and what is actually, you know, legitimate. Does he really have a tongue like a sword? Is his tongue sword shaped? Well, I don't really think so. I think that refers to kind of his his authority, the authority of his words. But certainly, he will take on a much more commanding, physical, visible posture at the second advent. And and Jesus, in glory, will be visible. He will be a a man that we can converse and interact with. But God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are spirit. They are not physical beings. This is why it's so crucial to correctly understand the theophanies of the Old Testament, For instance, Moses going up on the mountain and closing his eyes and God passes before him and Moses opens his eyes and he sees God's back. If you don't understand that passage and this verse in 1 Timothy, you have the grounds to assert a biblical contradiction. The fact that the Bible has contradicted itself. Right? No one has ever seen God. God is... Invisible, according to Paul here in 1 Timothy 1.17, but yet Moses saw God's back. How do you square that circle? You have to then get into the second person of the Godhead in pre-incarnate form. It was not God the Father that Moses saw. It was God the Son. And you have to dig into that and parse that to make that point clear and drive that point home. So two attributes of God. His eternality. None of us are eternal. None of us are God. We are created by God. We have a beginning and an end. God is above us. He is eternal. We all have physical bodies with physical ailments and physical issues. God is spirit. God does not possess a body. He is spiritual uh, presence and omnipresence at that. He is everywhere at all times, forever. There's never an avenue by which God is hidden uh, from your view, or you are hidden from God's view. You are always, always in the view of God because God spiritually has presence everywhere. He dwells in His creation. He is not the creation itself. I'm not saying God is the creation, but God according to his omnipotence and his omnipresence, has presence everywhere. He also has presence inside of each of us, but that's the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. So Paul emphasizes two of the main attributes of God, his eternality and his spiritual presence. Point five. Point five. Paul also declares firmly that he is the only God. Paul also declares firmly that he is the only God. He is the God of the universe. He reveals himself in scripture. And this comes up when we're in conversations with people, right? Because if we're talking to a Muslim and they assert, well, we worship the same God, but they say that we're wrong and we say that they're wrong. There is only one God. The problem for the Muslim is that he doesn't worship God. He's totally in the cosmic system, serving and supporting the devil in the angelic conflict. He doesn't know anything about God. It doesn't mean that, you know, we worship the same God is sort of a, it's a befuddling like statement when you think about it. Because on the one hand, yes, there's only one God, but again, that Muslim does not worship God. We worship God through the only mechanism to worship God, which is the study of God's word. This is how God revealed himself. Specifically, God revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture that's it that that's the it for the specific revelation of god that is there's also the other aspect of the revelation of god which is the creation the created order itself is one of the ways god reveals himself to us but we can't look at a sunset and understand independent of the bible we can't look at that sunset and say god created me god loves me and God sent his son Jesus Christ to be my atoning substitute, and by faith in him I can have eternal life. You can't get that from a sunset. You can get some aspects of that. Romans chapter 1 says very clearly that because of the created order, because of creation itself, people understand that there is a God, that God created everything, that God is higher than us, above our standards, and that we are correctly, rightly, justifiably, under God's wrath that is plain to everybody even those that have never seen or read or understood anything from the Bible those those four buckets, there's more that can be broken down there but God exists, God created the world including me God is great God is above our standards God is above us and we are correctly under God's wrath But you can't look at that same sunset and then get to Jesus Christ or the gospel itself. You need special revelation, being the Bible, to get to the gospel itself. And that gospel is derived from the only God who reveals himself. We'll have more to say on that in just a few moments. Point six. This God is the Sovereign Lord of the Universe, the Creator of all. Point seven. He revealed Himself to us, extending a hand of relationship even to sinful humanity. was this God is the sovereign Lord of the universe the creator of all seven he revealed himself to us extending a hand of relationship even to sinful humanity point eight we are to handle the revelation of God carefully for it is our source of relationship with God It's our source material is what I mean by the word source. We are to handle the revelation of God carefully, for it is our source of relationship with God. Because again, apart from the special revelation of God found in the Bible, you cannot understand how you are to have a relationship with God. God needs to reveal himself to you to to show you the roadmap of how to get from point A to point B. And we need to handle that revelation carefully. So point nine, Paul seeks to reveal something of God to Timothy so that Timothy may be strengthened by Paul's example to preach the word. I'll repeat that. I know that's a doozy. Paul seeks to reveal something of God to Timothy. So that Timothy may be strengthened by Paul's example to preach the word. What does Paul reveal of God? His eternality, his spiritual presence, the fact that he's the only God, and the fact that he is the supreme authority. In this one verse, he reveals those four concepts to Timothy. And why does he do it? So that Timothy may be strengthened by Paul's example to go out and do what? To go out and preach the word. To cast these false teachers out of his church. To teach accurate Bible doctrine. Point 10. It is Timothy's responsibility to proclaim boldly the God of verse 17 and stand guard Against the false teachers plaguing his church. Once more, it is Timothy's responsibility to proclaim boldly the God of verse 17 and stand guard against the false teachers that are plaguing his church. How did Paul start this section? By saying Christ Jesus has given him Paul strength. Why did he do that? So that Timothy would be able to access that same strength. So that he could proclaim boldly this God of verse 17. The only God, eternal, immortal, invisible, the King proclaim that boldly to his church, and stand guard against the false teachers that were encroaching and infiltrating, had already infiltrated, his church. And point 11, so too, pastor teachers in the church age should guard their doctrine closely and resist the advance of false teaching. Again, so too, pastor teachers in the church age should guard their doctrine closely and resist the advance of false teaching. Do you see how I'm bringing this all back to the main subject of chapter 1? This is Paul's letter to Timothy. We can't lose sight of the bigger picture as we're going through the passage expositionally as we're exegeting verse by verse, word by word, precept upon precept. We're we're moving through this methodically. We need to remember that chapter 1 mainly is about Timothy resisting the advance of false teaching in his church, in the church at Ephesus, which Paul planted. And pastor teachers in today's day and age need to guard their doctrine closely in the same way so that they can understand Who false teachers are, why they function, how they function, and what to do about it, how to utilize the strength that Paul introduced to us in verse 12, how to have the quiet confidence in verses 8 through 11, how to stand firm against those who promote controversial speculations, those who don't know what they're talking about. And that's not just me saying it. That's the Bible saying it. They do not know what they are talking about. So this exaltation of God seeks to equip Timothy and all of us with the knowledge of God so that we can articulate who God is, what God does, and not fall into the traps of 1 Timothy chapter 1, which is false teachers, and their false doctrine. And I don't want you to fall into false doctrine. And I don't want to fall into false doctrine. We need, we desperately need the revelation of God so that we can guard our life and our doctrine closely. That's our objective. That's why we dedicate ourselves to the study of God's Word. That's why I do what I do. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the authority over all. We thank you that you are eternal. We thank you that you created us. And most of all, Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our substitute. And now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand faultless in his presence, blameless with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now and forever. Amen.